0: Welcome to Shop Talk Live, Fine Woodworking Magazine's bi-weekly podcast. I'm senior web producer Ed Pernick, and joining me today are art director Mike Pekovich and senior editor Matt Kenny. What's up, Ed? Hey, guys. Uh, before we uh, start things off, uh, once again for the now the 21st time, uh, if you like this show and you want to see it continue, uh, make sure you head over to our iTunes page, leave a five-star rating, and maybe even a nice, friendly comment
1: if this is our 21st episode, yes. I think that means we can start drinking on air, right? <laughs> uh, who says I haven't been drinking on air? That's the, don't you know it
0: was in my coffee
1: mug? Yeah, but it was illegal. Oh, and, yeah. and now we can do it openly.
0: Actually, we're close to um, episode 26, which will be uh, the one-year anniversary oh, really? Of Shop Talk Live. Wow. wow. Yeah. At which point, we can definitely play some excerpts from early episodes when the audio <laughs> sounded like we were... Talking in an aquarium? Oh... <laughs> uh, <laughs>
2: Sort of like readers of the magazine. I wonder how many listeners have been listeners from Podcast One. Hmm. I, I think a lot of folks,
0: when people start in new on the podcast, what I'm noticing is that they um, they start from Episode One and they go all the way back up and they listen to every single episode because I still get comments about um, sound effects that we don't do anymore. Um,
1: all sorts of stuff like that. You're still sensitive Um, about the sound effects issue, aren't you? (laughs) (laughs) Sound effects and the lackluster sound quality in the initial episodes. Um,
0: but anyhow, uh, so everybody knows, um, the big news that we've talked about ad nauseum, uh, and that was, uh, Asa and, uh, Chris Bexford's appearance on Parks and Rec last week. So, um, I'm sure, you know, plenty of the folks who listen to the podcast probably saw it. Um, and, you know, unfortunately, they cut Chris's speaking part. Right. Um, and actually, I think they made the right choice because it was one of those situations where it was like less is more, the way they cut it in the end. Yes, I'm drinking,
2: I'm drinking tea in honor Look, of Chris Bexford right now.
0: Ah, excellent. Because he was drinking tea in yeah. that shot. Oh, that's right. When he's yeah. when he's all alone. And right. uh, Ron Swanson talks about how he's probably mobbed by fans all the right. time. yeah. Um, but anyhow, I thought, th- I, thought I would uh, play an excerpt from the outtake that they didn't use of uh chris's appearance and this is basically let me set the scene up um this is ron swanson uh, nick offerman's character is at this woodworking show in indiana and uh he apparently is a huge fan of chris and uh, of chris's work so he's kind of approaching chris's workbench with great trepidation he's terribly embarrassed and you can kind of hear him say like instead of saying hello i'm ron it's like this sort of uh, hello <laughs> right. it's, pretty, it's pretty amusing. <laughs> so I thought I would, uh, I would uh, play it for folks. Uh, so here it is uh, from last week's Parks and Rec episode. <clears throat>
3: Hello. Uh, excuse me.
1: My name is Christian. My name is Bexford. Your name is Cr- Bexford. My name is Ron. Chris. Nice to meet you, Ron. Very nice to meet you. I'm a very big fan of yours.
3: Well, thank you. (sighs) Would you like to uh, try the
1: fishtail chisel? You bet I would.
3: Go right ahead. Got a little dovetail started there for you.
1: You already made your cuts? Yeah. Did you use this saw? Indeed. You use this dovetail saw? Daily. That's sniffing the saw. A fine saw,
3: it is. Go at it.
1: Let me go ahead and take a
3: have fun. Everything's cool.
1: Oh, <laughs> then he just whacks the hell out of that fishtail chisel. It's <laughs> like, what are you doing? Because <laughs> clearly he's so nervous having just
0: met Chris. Um, I. I the best part of that whole scene was where he's, you, you use this song? Yes, you use this dovetail song? And he just starts it? sniffing it and practically yeah. licking it. <laughs> that might have
1: been, I almost wanted to see him lick it. Uh, <laughs> that might have been slightly disturbing. Uh, well, I mean, the, the thing is, is that that's pretty close to what reality would be like because Nick Offerman really, really loves Christian Bexford's work and his stuff he's done in the magazine.
2: Yeah, I think that's what makes it funny is that he, it's, it's the, the appreciation and, and passion and intimidation. It's all authentic. It's real stuff.
0: Right. So. And that's, he's got a really, it's kind of funny because Nick's got a really funny laugh. And that's really yes. his laugh. He has this kind of <laughs> giggly little girl's laugh. Right. Which totally cracks me up. Um, well, anyhow, how about we head into our first question of the day? Um, and this is one that uh, involves uh, tropical hardwoods. Uh, Terry wrote in to say, hi, uh, regarding glue for splits in old thin teak decking, my boards are from an old exterior deck in Thailand. The thickness of the 10-inch boards is never more than three-quarters of an inch, and I've been trying to glue some splits with weld wood resource and all glue, which sometimes fails. Should I wet the wood before applying the glue? And I, I think it occurred to me after we had our pre-show meeting that the reference to wetting the wood, I'm assuming he's, I mean, that's, that's done a lot for Gorilla Glue. Um, right, for Gorilla Glue, Which yeah. foams up and... Uh, which
1: cures in the presence of water. In the
0: presence of water. Yeah, But um, So I'm assuming that this guy purchased some old teak decking. Let's go under the assumption that he's using it as reclaimed lumber to build furniture. Uh, and he wants to address these this checking at the end of the board. So right. what the heck right. does he do?
2: I mean, there's a couple issues going on. If you have some splits, I mean, first of all, in terms of glue source and all I'm not uh, I haven't used that with tropical woods. Typically epoxy is the glue of choice uh, for oily woods, uh something like teak. Um the other really important thing when you are gluing these woods is you need really freshly milled uh, glue surfaces. So if we're talking about splits in the wood, these things could be aged, weathered, you know, these could be just old surfaces. So it could be as much about the surface condition on you know either face of the crack, your glue surface as it is the glue you're using. So um, you know, a few different things. Number one, I would go back to a fresh surface, which means if you have a split, you could rip the stock at the split, and with that freshly milled surface, you'll probably get a better glue joint. The second thing is if you're dealing with reclaimed wood uh, at a certain point, you know, I'd say your two options are just cut off any splits or checks and use the fresh wood, or just accept them if they're not affecting the piece structurally, and just deal with the fact that it's reclaimed lumber, and that's part of the personality of, of what you're building.
1: Yeah, imagine there's already screw or nail holes in it, right. uh, and rather than cut those out, I mean, just uh, play up the fact that it's reclaimed lumber. Yeah, yeah and yeah you could if it's just ingrain checking just cut it off if you can uh John tetro does a lot of uh, a lot of reclaimed right. work from reclaimed lumber yeah John's one of our art editors here and he did an article it must have been in the last three or four issues um on working with reclaimed lumber so you could check that out and see how John uh, handles it yep um, yeah but uh yeah, yeah. I would I think my option would be just to play up the fact that it's reclaimed
0: and if he's actually laying this down it's as decking, um, you, you'd best go to fine home building for that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but it, I think he's using this furniture.
1: I'm guessing. Uh, yeah, I would think so. I, I, I guess so. I don't know. I mean, if you're using it for decking, or if you're just trying to fix existing decking, I would think you'd want to. The crack is really a symptom of something else, so you would want to try to figure out what it's a symptom of and fix the cause and not the symptom. If uh, it's if you're gonna if it's decking and you're trying to keep it as decking. Mm-hmm. All right, Doctor Kenny. Yes. <laughs> well, let's go on to I haven't work. been called Dr. Kenny in about five years well no 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 uh, we, we called you Dr.
0: Kenny and there was a controversial earlier episode of oh, where right. a took issue with your being referred to as a doctor um, yes I, I made, made it a point to call you doctor repeatedly in that episode um, but anyhow uh, the second question comes from Willie and Willie wrote I've heard a lot about how undesirable plywood from the large home centers is and I don't understand why i've heard it has a thin outermost layer no good for sanding or scraping and i've heard about high moisture content is this due to the small number of plies also i noticed they have birch plywood is this the same as baltic birch plywood if not what's the difference there aren't many options for premium plywood dealers in my area could you point me in a direction i should go to find premium plywoods that wouldn't require super expensive shipping thanks for any help and keep up the great work
1: so a lot of questions about plywood. <laughs> well, he's just—I mean—in yeah. a
0: nutshell, where where the heck do I go for good quality furniture quality plywood?
1: Yeah, I don't. In terms of the call, what why Home Center plywood? I don't know what the deal is with it, but I can tell you the problems I've found. Uh, it is—you show up and it hasn't been stored properly, so it's all warped from the get-go. Right. And warped plywood doesn't ever get flat. No, so. it's
2: just a bear if you start trying to cut that up and start yeah. trying to you know, build square boxes out of warped plywood. It's tough.
1: Yeah, a lot of times when you start to cut it up also, it may be flat from the beginning and you cut it up and it starts to twist up like a potato chip. Right. I've had
2: that happen. There was Well, there's a lot of different qualities and types of plywoods that are typically available at home centers and what you want to look for – more often than not, you should be able to find a cabinet grade plywood. It's going to cost you maybe forty to sixty bucks a sheet. Yeah, it's not going to be the really really thin plies. Typically, it's like a what is like a seven ply. It's like a
1: seven ply where like five of them are kind of thick. core, right?
2: And that's often referred to as birch plywood uh, because the exterior veneers are bir- birch. Yep. And uh, I, in a pinch, um, I bought that plywood at my local home centers and have good luck with it. Like you said, that the trick there. Is pull out a few sheets, make sure you get some flat sheets to start with there are a lot of other sort of funky plywoods at my home center, some of them with the multiplies, which is often referred to as you know a baltic birch plywood, um which is a very high quality plywood, but that really you know heavily plied stuff I've seen at the home centers quite obviously is a lower quality than that,
1: yeah, a lot of times what you'll see in those you'll see uh They'll have a, a seam in one layer of the plies, and then it'll be overlapped oh, and just okay. smushed down so that it's all the same thickness, right. whereas in the higher-grade stuff, you wouldn't see that. Um, there's also voids inside it, which can be a problem.
2: Yeah. I mean, when I'm dealing with a lot of plywood, uh, where we're at, there's a plywood uh, supplier that will deliver to the shop here, that's kind of nice. But short of that, uh, typically you should be able to find a, a lumberyard or construction supply place near you where, if they don't carry the plywood, they should be able to order you uh, the stock that you need. In... Right.
1: Yeah, a place that deals with contractors and yes. professional cabinet shops because you know they'll if they right if they don't have it, they can order it. Right. And some and some lumberyards. Also, uh, that deal in hardwoods, will also be able to either order it or have it in stock. So I would check there, too. Okay.
0: Um, you generally kind of want to stay away from buying it at uh, like the woodworking retailers just because they're going to charge you a heck of a lot more money for a two-by-three-foot sheet. Um, yeah. but so I've found. Unless, I've found. Mean, unless you, that's all you need. Unless yes, that's all you, need. That's all you yeah.
1: need. Then you can get the really high-grade uh, – yeah. and I, I usually buy something like that, to. To make backs for cabinets, you know, I veneer right. over it and glue it in, and uh, so I do just buy small pieces of it when I need it. Yeah,
2: if you're looking to make a crosscut sled, you want a piece of half inch Baltic birch plywood. You can go to home, uh, retail store, yeah. get yeah. a two by four sheet. You're going to pay more per square foot than a big sheet, but you're not lugging around this big giant sheet. Right, you get exactly what you need.
1: Yeah, and uh,
0: you did you did uh, mention how much he expects to pay per sheet. Well, for the stuff I wasn't that, paying any attention. I was taking notes yeah. on my.
1: <laughs> for the stuff at the home center, the higher grade, what they have, they usually call it cabinet grade or something like mm-hmm. that. It's you're looking at forty to sixty bucks, depending on where you live in the country. Okay.
0: Yeah. And and if you can find stuff like cherry and whatnot,
2: what's that going for nowadays? Oh, cherry going be, about hundred bucks a sheet. Yeah. When you start getting to the you know the true hardwood veneer, yep. plywood's upwards of yeah, 100 it's going bucks. to be a hundred
1: bucks or more. Yeah. For a three-quarter inch full sheet. Yeah. Right, right on. Okay. That you definitely would have to go to a lumberyard probably to get that deals also with plywood. Yeah. All right. Or, or you could you could just make your own plywood if you have a vacuum press.
2: Or not work with plywood. <laughs> that's, well, that would be an option. Yeah. No, I'm just kidding. All
0: right. Let's move into our uh, first segment of the day, and that's going to be all-time favorite technique of all time for this week. Our regular segment where we wax poetic about our sexiest, most beautiful woodworking techniques. Um what do we got here? I'm going to go with um, eeny, meeny miny." Okay, I'm going to go with Mike first. One word:
2: wedges. Wedgies. Okay, I'm familiar with the wedgies from grade school. <laughs> yeah,
1: I just we gave Ed some wedgies last week, actually.
2: <laughs> okay, well, this is a different type of. <laughs> Moving <wedgie>. on. <laughs> this, this would be a wedge. Uh, wedges are awesome in the shop. It's one of those overlooked little techniques slash tools. Uh, that really gets you out of a lot of jams um, wedges are some of the most efficient ways to clamp or secure stock which is really difficult in any other way for instance uh, if you're doing uh, clamping together if you're making shop-made veneer like matt often does and you have mm-hmm. these very thin veneers you can use wedges to hold those together yeah. if you're i do it a all the time toy. yep uh, i'm teaching a little box making class and uh, we're making some dovetail tea boxes, and these boxes are, are sort of skinny <laughs> it's enough. special? Ooh. It's very <laughs> dovetail nice. Dovetail tea could have
0: a little bit of tea.
2: <laughs> All right. And so once you get the boxes together, they're sort of narrow, and the dovetails are really tight, and it's hard. You can't get a mallet in there to bang these boxes out apart. So we're thinking, well, how the heck? And you can't just, with hand pressure, pull them apart, so... Got a piece of MDF. I just cut it diagonally across it, stuck both pieces in, and I'm tapped them together, and just wedged the box apart. And it's, uh, it once again reminded me of how cool wedges are.
1: Yeah. yeah. Wedges are awesome.
2: Thank you. You,
1: uh, Matt, you use them for stuff too. Yeah. Mike mentioned I use them yeah. to uh, edge glue shops on veneers right. all the time. I, use it. I set up a you know, piece of MDF with a couple of fences on it and uh, just go to town. Keep that set up.
0: Well, Matt, uh, that uh, brings us to you. Yes. Well, what when do you, you got?
1: When you said sexy and beautiful, yes. I immediately thought of Phil Lowe. So. I did too. That's <laughs> yes. kind of interesting <laughs> that, you, that you say that. Uh, yeah. The, my tip is something I picked up from Phil Lowe, and we actually ran it in a handwork article. Uh, I think the article was called uh, For Chisel Tricks or something like that.
0: Right. It was only a few issues ago.
1: Yeah, the ultimate all-time four-chisel tricks, last ones you'll ever need. Of all time. Of all time. (laughs) (laughs) And um, it's a cool little trick for pairing, actually. Let's say I I use it most often when I'm doing uh, dovetails. And on the tailboard, on both edges, you know, you've got that little half half pin pin there. And you've also used your marking gauge, and you've got a marking uh, gauge line on all three faces there. So what you do is you take your chisel and you put it at the corner where you've got two marking gauge lines coming together. Right. And you know, you don't want a bunch of waste there, just a little bit of waste there. And you can very easily take off like a sixteenth or an eighth of an inch into the tail, towards the tail, and it's very easy to get that down. Coming in from the corner. Coming in from the corner, and it's sort of straight in towards the tail and you get a nice, perfectly located pairing cut. And then for the second cut in, you're also going to do like a 16th to an eighth of an inch. And you use the first pairing cut you made, which has this nice clean shoulder now. You use that to register and guide the chisel for the second one. And you just make this series of small little cuts as you go across the shoulder. You end up with a perfectly aligned shoulder after that. And it's amazing how well that works. It's fantastic. Oh, cool. Yeah,
2: I really Uh, like that a lot. It's a great concept. I mean, it's really similar to using a router bit to take a shallow cut to establish a line, maybe following it up with a bearing-guided bit, riding on that cut to go deeper and deeper. Right,
1: yes, Yeah. yeah, a good basic concept for woodworking.
2: Yeah, it's neat how, you know, there's, again, the false debate between hand and power when typically, you know, the same concepts are behind working successfully with any tool that you're working with. Right. That's great. Exactly. Do you use any any uh, particular tool or, or chisel for pairing?
1: Uh, yeah, I do. On in that particular instance, the chisel. I just actually bought this chisel. I think that's why Mike uh, is asking. <laughs> oh, oh, really, Matt? <laughs> <laughs> Matt, did you just get a new tool? <laughs> uh, yeah. Now I bought. Uh, I've been using my Lee Nielsen chisels, and they they worked really well, but they're short. Mm-hmm. And I have in the past have used. Uh, Japanese bearing chisels, which are typically about fourteen inches long, and most of that that's is including the handle. Including the handle, okay. yeah. Long, no, long that's chiseled. just the blade is fourteen. The handle is three feet long. <laughs> <laughs> I've hired some kids from the neighborhood to help me use it. <laughs> no, but it, it, it has a nice long handle, and the and the blade is actually kind of short, maybe three inches. Okay, and you just know, get a
0: ridiculous amount of control.
1: Yeah, you get an. It's really easy to control it, and also. Uh, Miley Nielsen's are a two, so yes. they have to be at a steeper angle okay the you know this is a Japanese with the uh meld you know the the two different steels uh together right and the, so the cutting angle is really low and it just it's beautiful on hmm. uh uh for pairing
2: oh cool, yeah yeah, I have some Japanese chisels. I don't have a Japanese pairing chisel. I might need to get one, but I do tend to keep those very sharp, and I tend to save them for hand work exactly like pairing right.
1: Yeah, I really, I would highly recommend this uh, Japanese pairing chisel. Cool. Mike, I, I do look you have that. to, wait, I'll just hold on a second here. Do you <laughs> have to, like,
0: bring all your tool purchases past your wife? Or do you just get to buy willy-nilly whatever the heck you want?
2: It's called everything. Uh, <laughs> detached garage <laughs> shop. That's
1: right. And yeah, we up. talked about this on the last episode, right?
2: Well, I know. Yeah, we did. Yeah. We did. But
0: detached garage shop, only one key, and it's always in your pocket.
2: Yes. <laughs> the car goes up to the shop. Yeah. Mike gets all of shop. his
0: stuff delivered to work. Nice. Yes. That's smooth. Yeah. And you can always tell, you know what I've done? Luckily, my wife doesn't listen to the podcast, but um, I have sometimes when I have come home with a new tool that I know she's going to give me guff about, I'll say, oh, you know, it was, I got it. Um, they had used it for a tool test at work and the company didn't want it back, so I just got to keep it, which is totally baloney because we can't, we're not allowed to do that. But um, it it, wor- it works. So- you could always say that you worked for a woodworking magazine it, and you got it in it, a tour review.
1: Yeah, I got, a new yes. job,
2: you know? <laughs> I got a new
1: job.
0: I, I never told you. Yeah, I've got a new job.
2: But you sell insurance, Mike. <laughs> yeah, what do you mean right. you got a free bandsaw?
0: Um, well, I, I, have, I have a technique that I'm sure you'll both shoot down in short order or tell me that, oh, that was in issue 162 or something. Um, but uh, I was building a little cabinet, or I am building a little cabinet, um, and I was using Stephen Hammer's... Um, Technique for doing my tails on the bandsaw. Um, So it's a dovetailed case for this cabinet, and um, Stephen Hammer covered in an article called "Half Blind Dovetails and Half the Time" this way to cut his tails on the bandsaw, where he uses um, a little jig that butts up against the bandsaw's fence, and it has uh, an angle cut into it um, that represents a one in six dovetail angle, and he puts his workpiece in this against this angled board. The other side of the board rides against the fence of the bandsaw, and he cuts his you know, uh, angled uh, tails. Um, Then I thought, all right, why can't I stay at the bandsaw and cut my pins? So I built this little ramp that was at the same angle as my tails. Um, And that basically, uh, the ramp can be used um, in, you know, it's two-sided. So you cut one set of angled cuts and then you flip the whole thing around. You make the other set of angled cuts. And I did a blog on it. Um, it's, if you go to findwordworking.com slash blogs, there's a blog about it. It's not the most time effect, you know, the most effective use of your time because there's a lot of, you know, resetting the fence for every pin cut. and It's kind of a pain in the butt. And the pin cuts have to be accurate. Unlike the tail cuts, you can get away with a little right. bit of, mm-hmm. but you know, you, you yeah. cut, you always cut to the waist, you know, the waist side of the line and you're okay. Right. You do a little bit of pairing and you're good. um, I've gotten pretty good at cutting my tails with a handsaw, so I, I don't know that I would actually keep using this technique. But I will say this. If I was having a heck of a lot of trouble um, getting really nice straight uh, cuts with my handsaw, I don't think I would hesitate to use this method. I had, you know, it, it worked pretty well. Um, but like I said, it's a little bit time-consuming um, with all the setup and reset up of the so In
1: other words, now. what you're saying is it's not for hand tool superstars like yourself, but yeah. for, for hand tool <laughs> chumps. Is that what you're saying? I no You're not saying that. No, okay. but I've
0: gotten right. I've gotten just good enough
1: that I can you know Yeah cut uh, straight.
0: Yeah, I can cut straight now.
2: So uh, it sounds like you're still to the point because of the lack of accuracy in lining up your pin cut, you're being a little conservative and yeah. you're making a lot of pairing work for yourself after the Not fact. a ton. I
0: mean I can you know I can pair each corner, you know, joint that's coming together. Mm-hmm. I, I can pair each one in like I don't know, I can get it to fit generally in like ten minutes. Okay. Um, but I am being, a, I'm probably being a little yeah. conservative because I'm scared of screwing it up. Sure.
1: So i uh, I mean, I like the Stephen hammer method for dovetails as well. Uh, and I use it a lot last night. Like, uh, I cut the tails for three drawers in like 10 minutes and, uh, I enjoy using hand tools, but I don't have to, you know, it would take me two nights to do that, you know, by hand. Right. And I, and, uh, but I have found that the the router method that he uses for the yep. pins is fantastic. No, it is. Yeah, it's. Uh, I, so I would say I would just say do that instead of the. Double. I would
0: too, but yeah. it's it's kind of one of those moments where I, you know I had a like a G Wiz light bulb moment. Mm-hmm. It's like oh yeah. I should
1: try this, and it worked, and it was the coolest does, feeling yeah. in the world. As long as you get that, because you're cutting all the tails at a guaranteed angle because yeah. of the jig. If as long as you get your your. You used a sled. Here's the. It's a sled, basically. Here was the trick. You've got to get that dead accurate. And here's how I did it.
0: I set a, um, uh, a, oh god, a combination square that you know has the ability to. uh it has a protractor. It, it head. has the protractor head on it. Um, you use a I set gauge. that to the ramped jig that I use to cut my tails. Mm-hmm. I set the protractor right to that, right from that. Yes. And then I transferred that to a couple pieces of little plywood scraps. And then I cut, you know, I, I cut them out. Um, so I got the angle right from the other jig. So I knew that they were going to
1: yeah. line up. Um, the other thing you might have, made, you probably could have done, is the wedges that you use to make the sled. Yeah. Just use the jig that you use to cut your tails. Ooh, duh! Yeah, that's brilliant. No, it's so simple. It's like, yeah. Why didn't I? Hmm.
0: Yeah. There you go.
1: That's that's why you're a web producer.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, me. because prints really
2: prints really go in places in the 21st that's century, right. isn't it? I mean, for for me, most of the, uh, when I do end up with gaps in my dovetails, most of them come at the pairing stage. Yes. Because a lot of times there's so many surfaces and you're trying to work each surface. You think, oh, maybe I'm tight here. So you start to work that joint. By the time it finally seats, it's like, ah, you got these gaps. So for me, I, I tend to try to always saw and teach to saw right on the line. And it's not some macho thing. Oh, I'm going to get there without any pairing. It's just because of closer the Do you make the line gets, disappear? Uh, I use a scribe line, and I saw it directly adjacent to it. And, okay. I, and I do ideally make it disappear. And uh, only because I end up with ultimately better results that way. Hmm. Um, and to Matt's point, I think you when you mentioned the, the router thing, you're actually routing up near to the scribe line and then just pairing with the chisel right to the scribe line?
1: Uh, Well, two things. Uh, I was going to mention this earlier. One thing that really improved my dovetails for me was giving up the scribe line when you're transferring, which is something I learned from uh, Steve Brown at uh, North Bennett Street School. We did Uh, a handwork on when to use a pencil. Yeah, yeah, I remember. So I use a pencil now to transfer my tails to my pins and I know then what to do. You cut exactly up to the line but not into the line because mm-hmm. the whole line that you draw is on the pin.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: So, yeah, so when I'm routing now, I in, because you're routing ingrain, mm-hmm. you have a lot of control over the router. Yes. And so you can get almost dead on that line. And then usually it's just simply I don't pair down the board, I pair across the grain. Right. And it's just zip like that. And I'm telling you I can get that I can get that together with minimal pairing, like two minutes of pairing, and it's it goes together beautifully.
2: Yeah. So with a pencil line, the only thing that kind of freaks me out, and I understand the concept of it, but you don't have that hard scribe line anymore as to register that chisel in or anything. But if mm-hmm. you
1: go across the grain, which is something I learned from uh, Clark Kellogg, it's, making uh, a it's it's much easier to control Yes, cuts. absolutely.
2: Yeah, the the tendency is when you're pairing those is to stick the chisel in the scribe line and the end right. grain and go straight down depending yeah. on which way that grain is running along it's the board. It's going to dive in. Or, right. yeah.
1: And it can also split the board, especially on drawer parts, which can be somewhat right. narrow. You got
2: those little skinny half pins on the outside. Yeah, what you guys are talking about that.
1: pairing, I just use sandpaper. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just use my belt sander and round <laughs> it over and it gets in there. Um,
0: I, this, you kind of mentioned something that made me um i have a question yes this is my own question it just occurred to me because this was driving me batty last night when i was working on my dovetails i have a a nice little set of socket chisels that i love um but i have one one of them the handle will not it absolutely positively will not stay Stay in in the damn tool steel it falls out constantly and i was thinking maybe i'll Epoxy. Soak it in some water? No, nah, epoxy. Really? Just epoxy? Well, because
1: the water will eventually dry out. Just that's Glue it. Glue it. You can I've heard, according to Tom Lee Nielsen, glue it good. uh hairspray, actually. <laughs> hairspray. Yes. I know you have the lots hell of product. Does that do? <laughs> I don't know what it does, but it'll and also the thing I've done in the past is you take a hand plane shaving yeah. and wrap oh, it around wrap it. the tenon and smack that's it back smooth. in. But Mike, probably yeah, I've, I've, epoxy. I haven't Mike. tried the
2: hairspray. I have tried the shaving. I've tried just sort of shaping or pounding the thing in. Epoxy, man. Just, just two-part. I know, I know it's, epoxy. it's sacrilegious. Oh, you can't epoxy a handle to it. Yes, I you don't can. can. Yeah, you can. It works, and it, it stays works. stays in there. Okay. So, yeah. The worst thing is with the socket chisels, especially once you know the heat goes on the winter, starts to dry out. You go lift your chisel out yep. of the rack by the and handle. And it
0: falls on the concrete oh, floor. Yes. Oh. Yeah. See, Lord, I got lucky. That happened to me a couple times yesterday, but we have a rubber mat at the foot of the bench mm. in the shop here and I, I got really lucky.
2: <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's that split second you say, what's more important, the tip of the chisel or my toe? And often, I'll just stick my foot out there and tr- yeah. oh, hell try, yeah. to, you <laughs> try to catch it with your foot. Yeah, yeah. I could yeah. deal
1: with a couple butterfly stitches. Yeah. So why you wear leather shoes. Um, okay. Well, M- Mike's always wearing flip-flops yeah. and Birkenstocks, <laughs> Birkenstocks
2: and I got Crocs. my mandals. Yeah.
0: <laughs> um, all right, Mario Batali. Uh, let's go into a, a real question from a real listener. This is... Um, This is from Mark, and Mark wrote, Hi, guys. Every now and then, I get the urge to upgrade from my trusty contractor's saw to a cabinet saw. But for some reason, that steep expenditure is not a priority for my better half. Something about our boys going to college in 10 years and retirement in the future. So a used saw is likely to be the only way this will ever happen. I've searched Craigslist and recently came across a saw that appears to have significant surface rust and probably pitting. I don't know how deep the pitting is, as I haven't seen it, which got me wondering, how bad does rust pitting have to be to affect the flatness of the table? I know to check the arbor for runout and flatness of the table overall, but is there any functional downside to pitting in a used saw? Thanks, and keep up the good work. Now, before I turn you guys loose for your additional feedback, I approached um,
1: uh, Raleigh, our Resident tool junkie. I think when you when you talk to people
2: outside of the magazine, Roland you, have to, you have to call him Roland? Because otherwise, Johnson. people don't know who you're and, talking about. And please use a Minnesota accent when you Roland. read his reply. Okay, now um,
0: <laughs> there are no problems caused by rust pitting on the table surface. Pitting would never cause warping or any other movement in the cast iron. See, it's a reduction process. All right. Now, let, let me say that again. Well, in it's my a little opinion. bit more like Barney. I can't. Yeah, I know. I can't, uh, I can't do it. All right. This is what Raleigh say. There are no problems caused by rust pitting on the table surface. Pitting would never cause warping or any other movement in the cast iron. It's a reduction process. The pits should pose no problems with using the saw. Just keep the table surface clean and waxed, and it will function fine. One thing I would be concerned about when buying a table saw that has considerable surface rust is the amount of corrosion inside the saw. Sometimes surface rust simply indicates humid storage conditions and the resulting surface condensation or possibly direct exposure to the elements. But if the saw has been in particularly damp conditions, The internals may be severely rusted also, and that can affect the functionality of the saw. Rack and pinion gears that raise, lower, and tilt the blade, exposed shafts, the exposed parts of the arbor, and a host of other parts can suffer damage. Look inside the saw. If not a rust bucket and the price is fair, it's a great way to get into a heavy saw. After you make the purchase, check out my articles... Oh, man, shameless plug by Raleigh. <laughs> check out my articles on fine woodworking about rebuilding and maintaining your new toy. Oh, uh, But that's a good point. He does have a bunch of articles. Yeah. Also, I'll articles.
1: point out that Raleigh doesn't mind if we give out his email address to readers. <laughs> so, I want, oh, excellent. I, I want Raleigh to get tons of emails. <laughs> um,
0: but that's a good point. He, he said, you know, basically... You know the, the the pitting is not a problem in and of itself, right. but it might be symptomatic of something you might want to check out right. inside. So the go saw. through
2: all the adjustments, the blade height, blade tilt. Plug it in, turn it on. Does the motor work? Yeah,
1: absolutely. Plug it in and turn it on. Right. Yeah, um, yeah. The, Raleigh's right that if the uh, the internal mechanisms are heavily rusted or pitted, I w- I would pass over the saw. But the table doesn't matter as right. much. I have I bought a used saw, and I, I for most people it's. Pr- it's it's a good way to go because I got a fantastic cabinet saw mm. for two hundred and fifty bucks. Oh, that's all you paid. Well, okay.
0: Well, that leads us into the the kind of next segment we were planning on doing, and that's you bought a like nineteen seventy or so uh, vintage unisaw. Delta Unisaw, right. um, which is like built like a tank. brick a tank house. Yes, um, or and, a tank. Uh, you recently had to do some work on it, so why don't you yes. take us through what what you found with it? And what you had to yeah. do and so on and so forth. I've
1: actually – had I mean I've actually now have over $1,000 invested in it. Uh, so it's not like in the end it was super cheap because it's a used saw, old saw. So you're going to have to do some work on it. So – but I didn't do it all at once. So you could slowly invest. Instead of dropping 1500 bucks or $3,000 at once, you can invest money slowly. And um, so I replaced the table saw fence. I got a unit fence for it. I uh, – put in a uh, Biesmeyer drop-in splitter. Um, and what else have I done? Uh, I had to re- do the rewire it and do some work on the magnetic switch, magnetic starter. But I know what you're getting at. The most recent thing I did was, Wee. yes, I had the motor rebuilt. So, <laughs> Oh, okay,
0: wait. Let me set this up for people. Okay. Matt saw before the rebuild.
3: <laughs>
1: it wasn't that bad. It was a little
0: clanky.
1: It was a little clanky, yeah. And it also had the problem that the motor wouldn't kick in right away. It would right. run at a slow RPM for a while. And then of an indeterminate amount of time. It could yeah. be thirty seconds, it could be five minutes, and then it would then it would kick in. <laughs> <laughs> so um so I had the motor rebuilt and uh the, the this Unisaw has what's called a what a lot of people call the bullet motor. It's an old repulsion induction motor and they're really good motors. So uh, I didn't want to just replace it with a new capacitor motor uh which would have required me to buy new uh pulleys and so forth. Um so I had it rebuilt and I took it to a, a good industrial shop in in Waterbury, Connecticut to have that done. Um they replaced the bearings. They did, you know, they did everything. What did that set you back? Uh, well, you know, that set me back four seventy five, I think. But that's still less than a new, a new motor, a new capacitor motor, or it's comparable because the Unisaws have a particular motor mount, so you can't just go out and buy any motor. You would yeah. have had a lot more work to retrofit wow. a newer motor. Yeah, yeah. So it there's
2: w- a, a lot of hidden costs to getting a deal on a on a used tool.
1: Yeah, it, there are but still I think for the amount of money I've spent uh I think I have a, an excellent saw. That a motor, motor is also you
0: pointed out it's a, it's apparently a very coveted. It's a highly sought-after. coveted
1: sought after motor. It's a very good motor. They yeah. it's even though it's 1 horsepower they I believe they generate more torque. Mm-hmm. And so I've never had trouble. Yeah, I've never seen your saw bog bogged down. Bogged down. Um and also, when I had it out, I replaced the Arbor bearings uh, on the Arbor, which was a good thing to do. The, the You know, the bearings are very inexpensive, but this is what killed me. The bearings were only, you know, I spent $12, 13 on the bearings for good bearings. Um, I did not buy them from the manufacturer because they're $20 a pop then. But um but I had to go out and buy a, a bearing puller and an Arbor Press, so I ended up spending <laughs> no. you know, quite a bit of money. Yeah, but
0: it gives you an excuse to get new tools, which is always, you know.
1: Yeah, the bearing <laughs> puller I'll probably use again. I let uh, our shop manager use it here to do some work on our planer. Uh, but the Arbor Press will probably never be used again.
0: I can take that off your hands for doing my wheel bearings in the car. No, it's not big enough for that.
1: <laughs> 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 but, uh, yeah, so I, I did that, and now it runs fantastic. And, um you know, but, yeah, when you buy a used machine, you're going to end up having some hidden costs. But the nice thing is, is you can spread them out over a period of time. I've had that saw for maybe six, seven years. So I've been fortunate to yeah, have been able to spread great. it out.
2: And the other consideration about going new or used, especially with a table saw, is there's a the big advance in safety features is that new table saws are now mandated to have a riving knife. Yes. Which is, you know, that little shark fin that tucks right behind the blade. It goes up and down and tilts with the blade. And really, of all the safety features available, I think a lot of people would argue that's even more important uh, yes, in that. terms of preventing kickback and serious mm-hmm. injury than even the saw stop, you know, brake cartridge is. Right.
1: So. Well, yeah, the, the cartridge is just an added – you know, it's the, really the riving knife on the sh- – Yeah, the cartridge right. isn't right. going to prevent you from, from getting It's not back. going to prevent kickback. Right. The other good thing about new saws is dust collection.
2: Oh, another yeah. great point. Right.
1: I've had to – you know, I've done a lot of work with cardboard and duct tape to try to get my dust collection. And I actually had to cut a hole in the in the, in the the cabinet to put a port on it. I didn't okay. even have a port uh, for dust collection. So when people ask me should I get a used saw, I normally end up saying no, get a new saw because you'll have a riving knife and dust collection. Great point. But, you know, if you were like me, when I got that saw, I mean there – How could you pass up a $250 Unisol that was in fantastic Mm -hmm. shape, you know? Um, So uh, just be be prepared to spend more money. Yep. Okay. Well, uh, it's time to
0: announce the winner of uh, this week's uh, set of bench cookies. So last week we had asked folks to come up with a name for uh, Asa Christiana's fictional woodworking musical, um, because in the last episode, we talked a lot about their impending appearance on Parks and Rec and whatnot. Uh, so they were all bad. Um, they were all <laughs> terrible. <laughs> in a good I, way, though. In a good way. I mean that you know affectionately. They were corny. Um, oh, my gosh, yes. Uh, so the winner, here we go, uh, is Philorux, And his was, of course, the musical style is everything, but I can't get away from Soul Grain. Soul uh, Grain? A nod to both Don Cornelius' um, epic program soul train and i would
1: argue um soul man um anyhow uh but i so Are you talking about that movie that had c thomas howell in it where in order to get into college no, not, he no no you're not talking, I'm about, not that talking movie. about that
0: movie <laughs> i am talking about actually i don't know who did uh mike who did the original version of soul man i always uh, like the blues brothers the blues version brothers no
2: it was done before that sam game. and dave
0: was it, it might have been I, sam and dave yeah I don't I don't know. Know that sounds it about sam
1: and dave
2: i don't know. i just threw that out there
0: yeah but the Blues Brothers version is awesome, yeah. I think. But um, So I, I wanted to read a few others that are um, equally as awful. Um, from M. Baker 0 uh, Tramelot. Awesome. <laughs> Plank King. Uh, this is so it's bad. Is it Tramelot? Tramelot. Uh, Tramelot, yeah. Tramelot, yeah. Trammel. Plank um, King? Plank King came up with... Um, uh, oh, that's the person's name. It's a plaid, name. plaid world. Nick Carruthers, Mulan Gouge. It actually works better when you're reading it than saying it. Move on gouge. Um, Scribe came up with one, a guy named Scribe came up with one called, he uh, too here, paint your wagon vice and Annie get your glue gun. <laughs> Both very good. <laughs> I just, yeah. I enjoy this. Oh, this is so bad. Uh, anyhow, that was, that was a lot of fun. But um, the other thing that we had asked people um, to comment about, just for everybody's edification and, and uh, information, was to offer suggestions uh, for their own... Um, Christmas gift ideas and i i was gonna i was gonna lead off with uh last year i built i didn't build any this year before like we uh, get to though. the christmas yeah. gifts
1: can i Go ahead. Um, I think we should do another contest, maybe not today, but yeah. uh where people we started a a list of uh fictional woods ooh, and so one of them was uh walnut hurl mm-hmm. uh and spurted maple and so <laughs> <It's> just, <laughs> <laughs> I think we should do one. Because it's that same type of humor, corny humor, you know, where you uh, come up with fake woods. I think it would be fantastic. Okay. I mean, I'm getting these really – Mike's not even looking at Mike me right now. <laughs> He's <been> terribly embarrassed. <laughs> <laughs> but Walnut Hurl is a fantastic uh... – Well,
2: Raleigh Johnson, Roland Johnson, has the name for a wood. That he uses for any unidentified wood. Any identified tropical
1: wood. He calls it mimbiki. (laughs)
2: Mimbiki.
1: Yes.
2: (laughs) That's pretty good. Yeah. That's a really good one. Yeah.
0: Um, So anyhow, regarding Christmas gifts, I had a good one last year. I I went um, to the Library of Congress's website. Was it lottery cards? (laughs) <laughs> scratch off according
1: to the connecticut state government that's a fantastic christmas uh, gift
0: um i went to the library of congress and if you go to the library of congress you can research their um, digital photo archives which has a lot of cool stuff and um my grandmother is from cuba so i went and i looked for old pictures of havana harbor from about the time that her father emigrated there from spain and i found one this awesome panoramic shot of like a a schooner coming into Havana Harbor and you see people on the waterfront wearing these crazy bowler hats and stuff it's just a beautiful photograph wow. and it's a panoramic um so i had it printed and then i built a um a mahogany frame with a checkered inlay and i did a blog on it and i'll i'll link to it uh in the blog post for this podcast but it went over really well and um the little checkerboard inlay was a lot of fun to do, coincidentally. But
1: your family in Cuba—they were boat makers, right? Yeah, shipbuilders. Ship yeah, shipbuilders. They, they
0: yeah. owned the Havana shipyards, which are still in operation. Um, the government operates them now, obviously, but uh, they're still there. In fact, there's still a uh, there's still a dock there that's named after um, my great grandfather, which is kind of neat. Yeah, that's cool. Um, but anyhow, um, so that was my that was the best one I think I've ever picture done. frame. Yeah, it was a really cool. And but you couple that with finding a really cool vintage photo. From either the Library of Congress or the um, oh, there's another government site. I look National Archives. Yeah, look in those two spots for really cool vintage photos. Great idea. So
1: there you go. That's mine. What do you guys got? Uh, I I thought about this, and I rather than a specific thing that I've made, I thought about um, I've actually done a lot of woodworking gifts through the years. Actually, Um, I made my sister this uh, shaker. Uh, quilt rack uh, many years ago. And I see it now and it's just, it's horrendous. I mean, it's so bad, but she loves it. Um, I did a four-part blog once on uh, making this box with reclaimed studs from my house. And I actually gave that box to my mom. And uh, I remember she called and she was crying. When, wow. uh, yeah, she was so, uh, she loved it so much. And then uh, I've, and the bigger thing was, is uh, I would say if you're going to make a Christmas gifts and you want to make a bunch, pick something that's simple and pick something that would be easy uh, to, to make in batches. So, uh, for example, like boxes I've found, you can make like eight or nine boxes in a day and just – you cut them all – they're all the same you box. cut all the parts at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> it's all the same box, but you could choose different woods for the sides or the lids or whatever. Uh, and you could you have to go sort of into production mode, so pick things that are easy uh, to go into production mode with, like boxes or I think maybe I know where well, Mike's I know what Mike's, Mike's going cutting boards cutting boards yeah
2: yes. cutting great use up a lot of scraps that way, um, and they're really useful. The thing about uh, holiday gifts is. You know, you don't want to give someone something and it just kind of, oh, thanks, and it goes away and never to return. I like things that are really useful. Like your idea is is not just a picture frame, but give them a nice picture inside the frame so it's got some purpose yeah. to it. Um, and cutting boards are great because people use them. I, I made a foray into, you know, doing a couple holiday craft fairs this year. So I made a bunch of cutting boards along with some miter boxes, salt boxes, and tea boxes. Cleaned up. And um, the good news, bad news, the uh, bad news is I didn't sell everything I made. The good news is I got tons of holiday presents to, oh, uh, to <laughs> give away this year. So. It's like your son
1: and your daughter are going to yeah. get cutting boards. <laughs> salt boxes. <laughs> it's salt so, boxes. Uh, thanks.
2: Dad. Mom, I know you're listening. Please just turn off the podcast for the next five minutes so you don't know what you're getting.
1: Or does your mom listen to the podcast? Uh, all the time. Is is it Ms. Pekevich?
2: Uh Actually, I'm not sure if she listens. I just assume that she is. Oh, uh,
0: so. okay. Your mom doesn't listen, Mike.
2: I know, Ed. (laughs) Uh, You know what? uh, Also, cutting boards are really cool. uh, If you actually have an occasion, get invited to a holiday party or something. It's it's a great hostess gift. Bring a board, throw a loaf of bread or some cheese on it, and say, oh, and you get to keep the cutting board. And it's like, woo, wow, this is awesome. So be sure to get invited back to the next party they have. Because then they're going to say, well, where's the cutting board? (laughs) I thought you were going to bring me a cutting board. That's the only reason
1: I invited you. I need a small round one.
2: Yes. So, um, yes, I like cutting boards, and uh, we did an article a while back on cutting boards by yep.
0: by I can't remember. I know the I can see the I'm uh, uh, going to so link oh, okay. to Tim Albers.
2: Tim Albers. Really? Maybe.
0: Yep. Okay. Tim Albers. Very good. Well, let's let's move on to uh, our next question. All um, right. D. Spatafora wrote, "I'm looking at hybrid table saws." It appears that, other than an extension table surface, the ShopFox W1824 and Grizzly G0715P are the same saw. Would you concur? If not, what are the differences? Also, how serious is the alignment issue that I've seen posted about the Grizzly? Has Grizzly fixed this issue? If they're the same saw, I assume ShopFox had the same issue. True? All right.
1: They're hybrid, so that means there's both a gas and an electrical engine? That's correct.
0: Okay. And then the the gas takes over after it gets up to a certain RPM. Yes. It cuts from electric to gas.
1: So how many rips per gallon do you <laughs> so get so off of that? Anything
2: from pine through mahogany, It's it's you're not using any gas whatsoever. <laughs> right. Okay. It's right. only when we get to the hardwoods, sure, really hardwoods. Oak, it goes uh, to the gas engine. Then then you're <laughs> oh, up to <laughs> diesel by then.
0: Yeah. So we talked about this a lot uh, before the show. And it ultimately, I what, what we kind of realized was um, you might – be best served by doing two things here, number one, I did look up all the specifications for both saws, and you can easily find them on each site. Um, both companies are owned by the same uh, individual the same businessman um, and they are very similar i mean i 'm not going to go into all these specifics, but they are they seem very similar in the specifications um, i can 't tell you though what makes one around eight hundred dollars and the other one around twelve hundred bucks that 's you know um,
1: yeah, we, we we should say that the three of us have not seen both saws right, in correct. person and
0: used them. Correct. Now I have the Grizzly, mm-hmm. um, and I can tell you that I've been, you know, I I've been very happy with it. Um, I played around with it a lot before I put it into storage in my in-laws garage because <laughs> <laughs> so I don't have a shop yet.
2: <laughs> what was the alignment but, issue? Um, was that anything? I
0: don't know. He didn't say whether he's talking about the rip fence being difficult to align or table alignment. Okay. Um, mine was. It very well aligned, probably, because it was put, It had been put through a tool test for us. So, you know, we obviously align everything when we get these things. Which, by the
1: way, you would not get it for free. You had to buy it from Grizzly. I had to buy it. That's yes. correct. Yes, yes. Um, but um,
0: I found, as far as my rip fence is concerned, I found it didn't come out of alignment. I did a lot of test cutting when I was
1: making the— I wonder, I, I, my suspect—I mean, one of the things we were going to eventually get to yeah. was what to look for yeah, when so you're let's, buying.
0: Well, let me, so let me say that with the Grizzly, and I'll end on this with my saw— um, my only observation is that, you know, look, it's got a two-horsepower motor. It's not a full, you know, big three-horsepower motor. Um, for the most part, that's fine for me because I cut usually cherry and walnut and pine. I'm not doing a lot of white oak stuff or a lot of maple.
2: Do you have a thin kerf blade in there?
0: Um, I've cut with both. Mm-hmm. I yeah, with definitely
1: both. a thin kerf blade will cut thicker stuff more easily than a, a Less friction. Curf- yeah. Well, you're removing less material, less, too. Le- yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, and it, it would bog
0: down a little bit. In really hard th- and much thicker, okay. with thicker than four quarter, you know, um, but I would expect that sure. with a two horsepower motor. So you know, it's, right. That's the upside what is getting.
2: you just plug it into your outlet. You're not rewiring your shop for two twenty.
0: Well, no, mine was wired for two twenty. Oh, okay. However, it can be rewired for one ten, um, and they give you in
1: the specs they give you the amperage for each. Well, were you using it with uh, two forty or one ten? I was using it at two twenty. Yeah. Yeah. By the way, rewiring it one or the other, it doesn't make any difference whatsoever in relation to the power of the motor. The only advantage would be for a 240 line would be as if that was a dedicated circuit. You wouldn't have anything else pulling off amps and stuff from – But you can make a dedicated 110 circuit. You can make a dedicated 110 circuit, which I would say for your big machines, you should have dedicated circuits. Because otherwise, if you're on the same circuit as a bunch of house lights and stuff, you might be underpowered or you might be dimming out your house. Yeah. Anyways. So what would you guys look for in
0: purchasing a um, a hybrid table saw? Let's get to the...
2: Well, let's describe a hybrid saw. So basically, before hybrids, you had a, a cabinet saw, which was like the standard, more expensive saw, obviously a cabinet. You had um, the motor attached to belts. There were trunnions attached to the base with a separate top. And then the other right. option were contractor saws where basically the motor was hanging off the back. The trunnions were attached to the top itself. An open yes. stand, bad dust collection. Right. Hybrid somewhere... In between, where you do have a cabinet, but typically a smaller motor, often powered through 110. So again, you're not having to rewire your shop. So right. you get the advantages of the enclosed base. The trunnions are mounted to the base instead of the top. So well, not
1: on all of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think on hybrids that you have to really check that because I think on some the trunnions are mounted to the base, but on others the trunnions are mounted to the table. Right. So you would that's something I would personally look at because it uh, it makes a difference when it comes time to if you have to adjust the table. Absolutely. Yeah, right. it's a big difference.
2: So, so it's a fairly relatively new class of table saw.
1: Yeah, about six, seven years old. Yeah, yeah. so it's
2: aimed at the uh, hobbyist woodworker as opposed to either the pro cabinet maker or the construction site guy.
1: Right, because really contractor saws, that traditional style, I don't even know if anyone makes them anymore because uh, uh, contractors, job site guys, use job site saws. Exactly. The, with right. universal motors. Sure. Because they're so much more portable. Yeah.
0: So give us the bullets. What should this fellow be looking for in a value-priced saw? Because I'm assuming that's what he's after. He's, yeah. He doesn't have a ton of money to spend, but he's got a little bit of cash to spend. So f-
1: first, you got to check to see power supply because uh, putting in a two forty volt line, if you can't do it yourself, can be pricey. Right. So look at the power supply and look at the amps that it draws because I've seen some motors that say they run on one ten. But they say the amp draw is 20 amps, which means when it starts up, it's going to spike higher than that. And most likely, your circuits in your house are only 20 amps. So that motor could trip your uh, circuit breaker a lot.
0: Hmm. Right. Now, for example, these two saws, I noticed at, if wired for 110, they're pulling 16 amps. Wired for 220, it they're pulling 8. eight. Yeah, because so. it's
1: 8 on two legs. So it's right. actually, you know. Um, so I would look at that. That's one thing to look at. Um, the what else I would check the throat plate, uh, to see if it can be easily replaced by a shop made throat plate, or do you have to buy, uh, you know, can't sometimes do that on the Grizzly, yeah, sometimes they have really thin, uh, throat plates that you can't easily make yep. one yourself. What else, uh, I would look at, uh, the quality of the fence because, by and large, I mean, most of these, not by and large, I mean, these are. They're all going to be good saws, unless for some reason you got a lemon. But then you would right. just deal with the manufacturer or the person you bought it from to get that rectified. But they're good quality. right? So you want to start looking at the convenience stuff, right? Uh, table saw at the rip fence, throat plate. They're all going to have riving knives and, and check out the dust collection. How good is the dust collection? What else in those terms, Mike, do you think?
2: Uh, You know, that's about it. If you're buying, you know, through a catalog or online, you're not going to be able to get up to it and kick the tires. So in that case, I'd probably uh, put a little bit of weight towards reviews. Uh, We ran a review on hybrid saws a while back. I'd take a look at that.
1: Yeah. And actually both of these saws that he mentions were reviewed in tools and materials individually.
2: Yeah. And I think they both did very well. I think there was a knock on on one of the miter gauges, which I wouldn't take too seriously because I really haven't seen a saw ship with a good miter gauge. To begin right. with, yeah most so. people
0: always end up buying a better miter gauge. Yeah,
2: that used to be the same for fences, but I'd say in the last, say, you know, ten or fifteen years, fences have really come up to speed, and you are definitely going to get a, a. You should expect to get a very high quality, accurate fence. Yeah, it'll be most some. likely
1: be a Biesmeyer clone. Yeah, that's right. I would go for a Biesmeyer clone if there were, if the fence wasn't a Biesmeyer clone, I probably wouldn't want this all. Right. Yeah. Um, anything else that they should look at?
0: Uh, I think those are the biggies. I think. I mean if you can't like Mike said kick the tires I I would my gut would tell me to be checking out um the various forums out there and probing other people who have various right. types of saws and see what their And I would actually there. also
1: go to your local woodworkers guild mm-hmm. there's probably one in your town um and start to be friends with these people and see what they use and try out their saws Right
2: Yeah Here's, here's something if you're either looking to go on uh, online forums or find individuals with saws versus reading a review in a magazine, they each have their strengths and drawbacks. Okay, a magazine gets to look at 10 or 15 saws at once. You're going to get a lot of valuable feedback because it's one person getting to look at every single saw side by side. I know when we've had the experience to do that with tools in the back, it's invaluable. Right. Uh, the short side is that we only get them for a month or so before we have to write the review. When you talk to an individual who's owned a tool for 10 or 15 years, you're going to get that, the, the big picture. How do you like it? The downside is they probably haven't had access to other tools. And like a lot of us, you get one tool, you learn to live with it, and you end up saying, yeah, this is good. I work with it. Right. So, um, yeah, just get as many sources of information as you can. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, one last question.
1: Uh,
0: and this comes from Matthew, and Matthew wrote. I have a jet one-and-a-half-horsepower dust collector with one of those one-micron canisters. I think I have the same model as Asa Christiana, if he doesn't have the Vortex Cone. I want to install four-inch ductwork in my shop, but is my dust collector large enough? I have a 20-by-20 shop. Should I just purchase a larger collector? What do you recommend? Um, Asa uh, wrote me a very quick response because he's actually away on a shoot uh, out in Indiana, so he didn't have much time. But I asked him, and he said, yep, he's right about what I have. Uh, and he needs to keep his hose runs short. I connect to three different machines with blast gates in each run, but the, they're close together. So my longest hose run is only about six feet. Um, I wanted to get your—you guys had a lot of specific bullet point bullet points to consider for this fellow. Yeah.
1: So. Well, first, Ace is dead right. If he's going to keep using that one and a half horsepower single stage collector, it, the runs have to be short. Keep it close to the machine. Yeah. Yep. Um, and then, uh, I guess if, but if he says, should I buy a bigger one? Um, and if it's, if, if it's within his budget, I would say yes, do. If you're trying to set up a shop so that you don't ever have to pull off a hose and move it around or anything like Mm -hmm. that, and you have the dust collector out of the way, get yourself a, uh, I would say get a cyclone. Uh, you could get a larger single stage guy, Mm -hmm. but, uh. Then you also you want to get a uh, you want to use as big as hose as you can or ducting
2: actually rigid ducting inch, yeah Matthew yeah. says he wants to install four, four inch, inch, inch duct and and work probably you want to install six inch duct yes
1: work. whatever the size the big duct on your dust collector is that's mm. the size you want and you reduce at the machine
2: so you keep it six inches as long as you can
1: yes that's great and reduce it and also use if. Use as little flexible hosing as right. possible because it's got all the internal. It's not smooth. It's not smooth, so anything that would cause turbulence decreases the efficiency of the dust collection. Right. So you can just use. I think you can just use uh, like heating and cooling. Yeah, the rigid duct. Yeah, rigid duct, mm-hmm. and you can you know. So, uh, I mean, if I was in this guy's position, I would. I would personally buy a cyclone. Set it up with rigid duct at as big as diameter as I could.
2: For as short a run as you can. As, fort- as short a run yeah. as I
1: could. Yeah, short, still keep it as short as you can. Yep. And, uh, and just reduce at the machines. Yep. All right. Sounds good.
0: Uh, well, uh, before we head out, um, as always, we get lots of comments on our iTunes page. And uh, I always like to read a few at the end of each show. Uh, from Brush Anna... Uh, Brushanna wrote in to say, Listening to your podcast gets me in the mood to get into my wood shop. I drive home from work at a big bank and can't wait to change out of my suit and into my shop clothes. Thanks for the inspiration. From Stephen Crabtree, I always enjoy these. You learn a bit, and it seems like you are all friends beyond the mag. Um, Stephen, we must be really good Mike, actors. and uh, Matt stink. <laughs> I hate them. <laughs> I hate you guys. Uh, and finally, Mark Belanger wrote in to say, uh, Bellinger wrote in to say, "I love the magazine, but the Fine Woodworking podcast makes me value my subscription even more. Great to get a sense of the personalities behind the issues. Additionally, I love being able to get my woodworking fix while commuting." Okay, this guy's either the shortstop for the Orioles or a relative of our newest associate editor, Henry Bellinger. Uh, nepotism, anyone? Just kidding. Um, yeah, yes, actually, ma- d-
1: just don't no one tell this guy that the podcast is free. That's right.
0: He's supposed to be sending um, $10 a week to uh, my PayPal account at ePernick. Well, it just seems,
1: you know, he said it makes him value a subscription more, but, you know.
2: Um, yeah. so if you're not currently subscribing please turn off the podcast and to yes subscribe right turn, turn off the yes. free loaders yes. um, <laughs> alright well that wraps
0: it up this week for Shop Talk Live we'll be back again in two weeks on December 28th for our next episode in the meantime show us a little love by leaving a comment on iTunes and by all means click that five star rating don't forget to send your questions and comments in to shoptalk at taunted.com you can catch the podcast via iTunes or stream it on your computer at shoptalklive.com
3: Cheers, everybody.